It's Exodus 20, uh, verse 7. We are continuing uh, looking at the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 7. And it says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we ask that you would speak to us today. Uh, We pray that you would convict us uh, of our sins. We pray that you would drive us uh, to the cross where we can look on Jesus and know that, as we just sung, though our sins are many, his mercy is more. We pray that you would build us up in Christ Jesus today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, anyone here, when you're getting quotes for maybe repair work or a contractor, uh, look for a business that is GEPRT approved. Anyone ever done that? A couple, okay, not many. It doesn't take long before you live in Utah, for living in Utah, before you see uh, one of GEPRT's ads. I think he's got a few on I-15, which you just saw when we were driving down there, which are pretty much just a picture of him. You know what I'm talking about if you've seen him with this, his arms crossed and kind of this stern look and a big checkbox saying, Geppert approved. <laughs> Many, any coupon mailer that you get will have at least a dozen pictures of him in the pack of coupons uh, with a half dozen businesses uh, saying, we're Geppert approved. And on his website, he's got a list of all of the Utah approved businesses, everything from blinds to bail bonds. <laughs> he's essentially selling his trustworthiness. I think he he served as like an investigative journalist for KSL for a number of years before branching out and and creating his own brand. And on his website, uh, or on his ads, he says he is the most trusted name in Utah, which given we're in a state that has a living prophet, is pretty impressive. (laughs) There's even this big link on his website that says he will pay you $1,000 if one of his guaranteed businesses doesn't live up to your expectations. Names are tied to reputations. Your name can either be associated with good things or with bad things. Your name represents something about who you are. You all have had this experience. If someone has been trustworthy with you in the past, say a contractor, you trust them when you hire them again to do that work. But if you've had a contractor that would never show up, and would never complete the job and disappear for weeks at a time, well, you won't trust them if they were to give you another quote for another job. Their name is tied to their reputation. It either makes you more or less trustworthy. And we are in the second part of our series through the book of Exodus where we are looking at what we're calling the gift of the law. And remember, God's law is like a blueprint for his kingdom community. It's a picture of what life should look like among his people. And what we see in this third command is that because Israel is God's community, they bear his name and they must then live in a way that reflects his name. God's name is tied to these people, the Israelites. And so how they live, what they do, will affect how other nations and other people see God, whether for good or for ill. And so to misuse God's name is really to speak or to live in any way that doesn't align with who God says he is, his values. 
And so the, the question I want to ask you this morning is, how are you representing God's name? How are you representing God's name? We're going to look at this just three ways. First, what's in a name? Misusing the name. And then third, how we misuse the name. So first, what's in a name? What I want us to do is look through Scripture to understand the significance of God's name. What's special about it? What does it mean to not be Geppert approved, but Yahweh approved? So we're going to look at a number of passages here. Exodus 6, 22 through 27. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now that's a familiar passage, one we sometimes use for benedictions. But then right after that, God says this, and so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. There's this connection between the priests blessing God's people, which really is a way of God saying, I am uniting myself to these people. I'm putting my name on them. And because my name is on them, I am then going to care for them. And they will reflect more and more of my character. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, we read, But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. Now, the context here is when Israel gets to the promised land, they are going to set up a permanent worship site, which will become the temple. But they can't just pick any place they will pick the place that God appoints for them. It'll be his address here on earth. And note how Moses ties God's name to his presence. To put his name there is for his dwelling to be there. He's putting his name on the mailbox or on the front door or something like that. Look at Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So God's name isn't just this collection of, say, four Hebrew letters, but it represents his character, who he is. Right? We, we get this in all of life. Like if someone said, hey, you want to go borrow my Honda to run your errands, and you, what would your reaction be? Well, hey, maybe not the most exciting car, but a reliable car, it will get me from A to B. But if someone said, oh, I know you've got to run some errands, would you like to borrow my Ferrari 250 GTO? Would your reaction be the same as with the Honda? Not at all, right? Some of you, your blood pressure would shoot up because you're like, there is no way I want to be responsible for that car. The bumper probably costs more than what I make in a year. Others of us, like, yes, I've waited my whole life for this opportunity, right? Do you mind if I take a little detour up Big Cottonwood Canyon on you know, my way to Sandy or <laughs> wherever it is I'm going? Right? The name conveys the character of the car. And in the same way, God's name conveys his character, who he is. He's more reliable than a Honda, more horsepower than a Ferrari. And so if we are people that bear his name, are we reflecting the quality and the character of God's name? If we jump into the New Testament, John 14, 13 to 14, Jesus says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So let's say you want to go to a jazz game. And you could go online and buy some tickets like most everyone does. But maybe you have a friend who personally knows Donovan Mitchell, who was the only jazz player that I knew of <laughs> for this illustration, right? And, and you ask your friend, hey, is there any way that I could get set up with some tickets from him? He says, oh, yeah, he loves to do this. When you get to the box office, just tell them, 
Donovan Mitchell, or sometimes I think sports folks, they, they take alternate names, right? Their, their secret name, their code name, that if you give it at the box office, they know who you're talking about. Oh yeah, he saved some tickets for you. His name gives you access to seats that you would never get through just going online and buying them. It's the same with Jesus' name. He gives you an access to the Father that you don't have on your own. Lastly, let's look at Acts 4, 12. The apostles are preaching and they say, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind which, by which we must be saved. So, the name of Jesus is tied to salvation. In the same way that the name of Jesus gives you an audience with the Father, the name of Jesus grants you salvation. It opens the door to eternal life. And this is a key point. I don't want us to jump over too fast. How is someone saved? By what you do? Well, it doesn't say that. It's by what name you trust in. In the same way that having the right connections can open up doors in your career, trusting in Jesus' name is the only name that will open up the door to eternal life. There is no other name. There is no other way in. And what is beautiful about this is it means that actually anybody can be saved, right? Anybody, no matter your past, can put your trust in Jesus. No matter how much you've messed up, no matter how much baggage you have, how much shame you carry, you, God doesn't look at that to judge whether or not you can come into eternal life. What he looks at is, is this person trusting in Jesus? Is he taking on Jesus' name? See, it is pride that ultimately keeps us from salvation. It's, I'm going to trust in my name more than I'm going to have the humility to lay down my name and take on Jesus' name and trust that is how I will get into eternal life. And what is so hard, this is the hardest people to be saved sometimes, sometimes the most moral, because you're trying so hard, and it's almost impossible for you to take on Jesus' name because of all the things that you're doing. Well, you want to at least add your name to Jesus' name. When you try hard at something, you want to be recognized for your hard work. Well, I want people to see how much that I do. But to be a Christian, to take on the name of Jesus, requires that you die even to all your good deeds and realize that you need the name of Jesus more than your resume of all the good stuff you've done. And this brings us into our second point, misusing the name. So we've understood a little bit about what the name of God is. How do we misuse his name? Often this commandment is tied to our speech, taking vows, making promises, what you say. Leviticus 19.12, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. So if you tell a lie, this is what we read about when Luther was talking about this. And then you, you say a lie, you say something that's not true, and then you back up that lie with saying, as God is my witness, I swear this is true. You've profaned or misused God's name. It's this double evil. You've lied, which is never okay, but then you've made the lie worse by stamping God's approval on top of that lie. It would be like your business owner. And you say, ah, we failed Geppert's, you know, business checklist, and he wouldn't let us be Geppert approved. But you know what? I'm just going to go on Google and search for Geppert approved and steal one of his images and put it on all my marketing materials, right? Even though you failed his vetting process. You're misusing 
his name. You're taking his name to try to show something that you aren't really, that isn't really true about you. And this brings out a key point about misusing God's name. It isn't just about swearing, which it is, but it's actually about anything that you do or say while claiming to be a Christian that doesn't line up with God's character. Remember the background to the Ten Commandments. God has redeemed his people. He's done that, not out of anything of themselves, but because he has loved them. And now he is leading them into a new home where they will become, Exodus 19.6, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. God is building a new community, and he's attaching his name to it. This is the Yahweh-approved community. It's like if you're going to go build a new home. And so you go to the model home and see what it looks like. This is what an ivory home looks like. This type of furnishings, this type of craftsmanship, this floor plan. Israel was God's model home, his model community. You want to see what God's people look like and how they live and interact as a community, you go and visit Israel. God was affixing his name. This is my approved community. And because of that, he was extra jealous to ensure that that community would reflect his values. Because what Israel did or what they failed to do wouldn't just represent them, but was actually representing God to the rest of the world. So let's look at a few examples of this. Leviticus 18.21. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. So child sacrifice to this ancient god Molech was something that was very common in the land of Canaan, where before Israel settled in it. In fact, one of the reasons why God had Israel go in and essentially clean out the land was because child sacrifice was so prominent. And so then if Israel were to go in and settle the land and start sacrificing children like the people before them did, it, they were acting in a way that was antithetical to God's character. But it was worse than that because not only were they doing that, but they were doing it as representatives of God's community. It would make these actions doubly bad. They're not just doing something horrible. They're doing it under the banner of God's community. Let's look at Leviticus 22, verse 2. Tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me, so they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Now, Aaron and his descendants were the priests of Israel. They received the sacrifices, they prepared them, they offered them in the temple. And these sacrifices were to be the first fruits, unblemished from your livestock or from your crops. And you were supposed to represent something that reflected God's character. They don't bring your leftovers to be sacrificed, and the priests don't treat these things like common items, but treat them as special gifts to God. Often, when I take trips, I'll bring home a little gift for all of the kids and for Lisa. And one of the things that I love about the new airport is right on your way out, there's that Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. So that if I didn't get a chance to buy something for Lisa, the kids are usually easier, I can swing by there and pick up some chocolate. But now let's say I bought a 24 pack of their truffles and on the drive home, I'm really hungry because it was you know, a long flight, I open the box and I eat half of them. <laughs> and then I get home to Lisa and give her the half-empty box 
with all the crumbs and the wrapping still in there, would she be thankful for that gift? Probably not, right? Especially if I ate all the ones that she likes the most. She'd be like, why are you giving me the scraps when you took the best ones for yourself? The gift that you give someone shows them you know, how, what you think of them, how worthy they are. And yet it's so easy. We get this you know, for our, our wives or our husbands, and yet isn't it so easy for us to offer God the scraps of our life, whether it's the scraps of our time or our possessions or our money? But God isn't pleased by that any more than your wife would be pleased by giving her a half-eaten box of chocolates. The gifts that we give God are supposed to reflect his character and show that we value him. And so if the priests are treating these gifts as common, as ordinary, and they're maybe taking some off the side for themselves, they're saying something about what they think of God, that he's not all that worthy, and that profanes, that misuses his name. One more example here, Ezekiel 20, verse 39. God says, well, go and serve your idols, every one of you. But afterward, you will surely listen to me and no longer profane my holy name with your gifts and idols. So worshiping, Israel was always tempted to worship other gods. God is saying, by worshiping these other idols, these other gods, you are poorly representing my name. God requires or desires this pure relationship with his people. He doesn't want a people whose hearts are divided among ten different loves or ten different gods, right? Well, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is just you know, the God I, I go to on Mondays, but I have other gods for the rest of the week. And so when they spend their time doing these things to please other gods, they show that the name of God isn't worth all that much to them, that they can be God's people, but they can have hearts that are divided amongst other loves. And so they're miscommunicating something about God's character. That he's okay with people who just give part of their heart to him. To misuse God's name is when people act in any way that is contrary to his character. And so this brings us to our last point. How we misuse the name. I'm going to look at it a couple ways. So first off, it should be obvious by this point. If you claim to be a Christian, but don't live like it, you're misusing God's name. Now, on the one hand, you're saying, oh, I'm a Christian. I claim the name of Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus. Which, in how you're living, does not indicate that you're one of God's people. And in one sense, it would be better to stop saying that you're a Christian than saying you're a Christian and not actually living that way. And this is so hard for us, right? Because all of us feel peer pressure. We want to fit in. It's all the harder in middle school and high school and college in those younger years. Well, everybody lives with their boyfriend or girlfriend before they get married. I mean, is it really that big of a deal for us? Or everyone uses that kind of language at work. If I don't talk like that, I won't be accepted. Everyone talks about women that way. I'm not talking about it as bad as they are, but everyone does it. Or everyone dresses that way, and I just want to fit in and be accepted. One of the, the phrases my dad would often tell me whenever I didn't want to do something because I knew I would stand out because of it, is he would say, well, you know, John Stoddard's set the standard. You don't do these things based on what everyone else does, but we need to set an example for people. And even though I never liked that, it stuck with me. 
And it is all the more true for Christians. Are you setting the standard in your life? Are you representing the beauty and power of God's character in a world that it may, it may look very foreign to? Are you honoring God's name in how you live? It is in the ways that you live informed more by just what everyone else is doing and, and what will help you fit in amongst your friends or your neighbors? Or are you living in such a way that you're actually shining the light of what it means to be a Christian in a world that is dark? So very practically, like, is how physical you might get with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, honoring God, or just doing, well, we're not going as far as everybody else. Or how you talk about other people at work when they're not there. You're just jumping in in the office gossip, or are you representing God's desire for truth and love? How you treat people that are different than you. Are you representing the God who humbled himself and became human to love us who are so different than him, sinners? Or are you just treating them because everyone else talks about these people in that way? Are the actions of your life faithfully representing God's character in your workplace, in your home, amongst your family and your friends? Is this true of your life? Titus 1.16. Such people claim they know God. Oh, I'm a Christian. But they deny him by the way they live. Do you say you're a Christian, but deny him by the way you're living in your workplace, your home, or in your community? You profane God's name, secondly, when you worship God with your lips, but not with your heart. This is, this is tied to this first point, but it's slightly different. Isaiah 29, 13. And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. And the reason that this type of false worship, where you just go through the motions, you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and every Sunday you go and you do all the stuff, but your heart is far from God. It's just, just habit. The reason this is misusing his name is because you're, you're almost living a counterfeit Christianity where you've got the name and the label, but the content isn't there. I remember uh, this family trip to Italy a, a number of years ago, and in the tourist cities, I was amazed. Uh, I was you know, a teenager, and there were all these vendors with, uh, selling all of these, quote, name brand goods on blankets on the streets and the sidewalks, right? And so you could walk down, and here was you know, a bunch of Louis Vuitton purses, only $20. Or, as I was interested in, a gold Rolex watch for $35. Or Oakley's, which I ended up buying a pair, $15, right, for brand new Oakley's. Now, it was illegal, it was something, it was funny, it was like this cat and mouse game between the police and these vendors. I remember watching one of the vendors who had sold a bunch of purses, and he needed more, and so he walked over to this public trash can, pulled the bag out, and under that he had another bag with a bunch of purses in it that he took them out and set them out to be sold and then put the trash back, right? Now, these things aren't real when you look at them, right? The details, it might have the label Oakley's, but at least mine broke after about two weeks of use, right? They don't match the quality. It's just the label. What you're getting is a cheap knockoff. And it is so easy for us to settle into a knockoff Christianity where you take the label Maybe you go to church, you say, I'm a Christian, 
But under all those actions, it's just the label, and your heart is not in tune and desiring of God. Your heart's far from Him. Thomas Watson has this great phrase where he says, pretended holiness is merely double wickedness. Another way we misuse God's name is when we use God's name or word to justify or to hide evil. One of the most common places this occurs is when people who carry some type of spiritual authority use it for their own gain and their own purposes, but justify it with the Bible or with Scripture. So this can happen in churches. It happens way more often than we want to admit, where church leaders may use the spiritual authority that they have not to glorify God, but for their own agendas and their own purposes. Or when church leadership or religious organizations, right? There's been so many headline-making cases of this these last few years where it turns out the leaders either turned a blind eye or completely just purposely ignored serious moral issues in kind of the, the head leader or the main leader because they thought, well, he's too important for the ministry. See, that is not honoring God, but it is this double or triple or compounding evil. Because what you're doing is you're stamping God's name on something and justifying, well, we need this. Look at all the good that's happening from it. When there are a trail of people that have been abused in the background and, who, and, you're, and you're justifying it with God's word. It is, it is a really great podcast right now. I know some of you are listening with, as long as, along with me, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And one of the themes in that is how the leadership continued to refuse to confront the pastor and to hold him accountable because he was deemed as too important. Or, well, look at all that God is doing through him. Well, you know, that, we can't get rid of that. And so that leader was able to oppress and bully so many people and get away with it under the guise, well, this is God's mission. Look at all the good happening here. It can happen in the home. And when a husband justifies the oppression of his wife or his kids. And he looks to all, he points to all these scripture passages, well, you need to submit to me. Or the kids, you need to listen to what I say. You need to obey me. And what's so hard about this is there is such a thing as a godly submission. And yet it is so easy to have a heart that is not in tune with that and instead is using it for your own purposes. That when a husband as Jesus said about the Pharisees, when this is true about him, crushes people with unbearable religious demands and then justifies it with Scripture, you're guilty of this double evil. You're putting an unbearable religious yoke on people and then you're justifying it with Scripture, saying this is what God wants, when actually it is antithetical to God's character. Now, every one of us is guilty of using God's name in vain. We don't live up to this. We fail. We fall short of the glory and the splendor of his name. And I'm sure you as well as I feel it as we look through the ways we do it. But that's why as we wrap up, I want you to see that the hope isn't, your hope for life isn't in you trying to live up to his name, but we can actually flip it. That our hope is, that, is the knowledge that God redeems us for his namesake. See, God, 
will protect his name. That's why that end of that commandment says, he will not leave you guiltless. God is jealous to honor his name, and those who continually go through life and misuse his name will be accountable for that. But on the flip side, when you put your faith in Jesus, God stamps his name on you. He says, you're Yahweh approved. And because he has put his name on you, he guarantees that one day, by the work of his spirit, you will be so transformed that you will reflect the beauty of his name. Because he's not going to put his name on someone that will not reflect that. And he knows you can't do it on your own. And so for the sake of his name, he will make you whole. He will redeem you from all of your sins. That's why Jesus died the death that we deserve. Because God promised to redeem us. And his name that he demanded, that he make good on that promise, no matter the cost. It's why God forgives you over and over again. God doesn't forgive your sins. We all struggle with this. And you think, well, I really need to repent really good this time, and then maybe God will forgive me because I've screwed this up 50 times this week. That's not why God forgives you. God doesn't forgive you based on how hard you try to make up for your failures. Well, I'm going to try doubly hard this next week. That's not why God forgives you. No, Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake, for my own name's sake, and will never think of them again. Your salvation is rooted in God's name, that he will ensure it is honored, and he will ensure that all that bear his name will reflect it. It's why God will guide you in life and care for you every step of the way, that you can never be lost if you are his, that he will never stop protecting you and loving you. Psalm 31, 3, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and you guide me. And it's like if you have a wilderness guide on your trek. That guide has a responsibility. His name, his reputation is riding on you all, making it to your destination safely. God's name is riding on every one of you who has claimed the name of Christ, making it home safely. This is where it's different from being Gepard approved. There, there's a checklist, right? I don't know what it is, and some people think it's, you know, you just pay enough money and you can get approved, right? You, you follow all these things, and then you get the label. But you see, what God does is he realizes we fail on every one of those things. But because he's put his name on us, he says, I am going to do the work. It's like if Geppert came into the business that failed and said, guys, I'm going to work here and get you all up to that level so that you pass. And that's what God, that's what Jesus does for you and I. He brings us to that point where the name is not just a facade, but it reflects who we are because God is working in us. So that one day, all the sins that you struggle with right now, and the temptations that are so strong in your life, and you feel like they beat you up every time you face them. One day, your duty will become your delight, and your body and your soul will live in perfect harmony with God. Not because of your effort, but because God has sealed his name onto you. And that is the most certain of all hopes. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would Help us to honor your name. 
to realize that you have stamped it on us when we look to you in faith and that you will do everything to ensure that we reflect that. So help us give ourselves to your work within us right now to live as befits people who bear your name, to be a light in a dark world, to be a hope for those who are hopeless. Father, we pray that our church community would reflect your name well and honor you in this area. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.